Let's open to 1 John. 1 John. If you're new to the Bible, uh, go away to the end where you find the book of Revelation, and then just turn back to the left a little bit, and you'll find three little letters written by the Apostle John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Follow with me as I read what the Lord is going to be speaking to us through for the next several months. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. 
I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not or they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. God and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that lo- that excuse me, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he can, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. 
There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Like the readers in John's day, we live in a pluralistic society. We live in an age which says to naive, undiscerning people, go to the supermarket of truth. Pick out your favorite philosophies and religious teachings. Buy them with the currency of your own wisdom. Take your bags home. Mix all your selected ingredients together into a custom soup that fits your personal tastes and live happily ever after. But that is a lie. Proverbs 12, excuse me, Proverbs 16, 25 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Following your heart, following what gives you spiritual goosebumps, rather than the inerrant and infallible word of God, will not lead to your happily ever after. It only leads to eternal death. Therefore, the Holy Spirit gave us scripture to be sure of what is true. And its overarching theme is this. Nothing is more important than what you believe about Jesus Christ. Nothing. Where you are in relation to him determines your eternal destiny. John makes that clear over and over again. The letter we know of as the New Testament book of 1 John was written about A.D. 90. Contrary to our view of retirement and old age, when we get to check out of serious involvement in life and ministry and service, the apostle actually gave us this incredible gift when he was about 80 years old. What a gift this book is. The unbroken testimony of the early church affirms that John is the author, even though he doesn't ever attach his name to the manuscript. He introduces himself as an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus, 
and the vocabulary used is very similar to the Gospel of John. Therefore, this letter is written by John, the brother of James, and the son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple of Jesus. As you may have noticed already, the letter overflows with Christian love. The word love occurs 46 times, and beloved six times. But the love that John writes about is not a weak, mushy sentimentalism that has no bones or no muscle or no strength to stand up. Instead, the love that he writes of is the love that originates in God, that it is part of God's nature, and it characterizes his posture toward us. It is love that is grounded in truth, doctrinal truth, which is based on historical fact, not fable. It is the love that transforms our fundamental relationship with one another. Over and over, John says, those who are born of God love. They are those who love God and those who are in love with the fellowship of God's people through true faith in his Son. The letter is written to believers, followers of Jesus Christ, those who are beloved by God because they are inseparably united to the only begotten Son of love, the Son of God who is eternally loved by the Father. By faith in Christ, we become united to Jesus, the one who has always been loved by the Father. Amazing. First John has written to ground us more deeply in the gospel, in the doctrine of Christ, and him being the word of life. It's written to strengthen our courage to stand firm against the rising tide of false teaching that opposes Christ and diminishes his eternal glory as the only redeemer. It's written to give assurance that we are truly saved. You may have caught it in chapter 5, but the apostle states his purpose very clearly. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may feel that you have eternal life. Not that you may think that you have eternal life. But that you may know in the depths of your heart. John wants us to know what we are required to believe in order to have eternal life. He writes to exalt our fellowship with God, which we have in Christ, which then produces a supernatural union with other Christians. 
This is not a shallow or superficial union based upon political convictions or ethnicity or age or marital status or schooling choices or eating habits or family ties or anything else that will one day fade away when Christ returns in his immeasurable, breathtaking glory. When everything in this life will fade. It is a union that revolves around what we affirm concerning Jesus Christ. It is a union that grows from possessing new life in Christ, which comes to those who are born of God. One of John's favorite phrases, born of God. It is a union which can only be produced by the one Spirit of God who indwells the many sons and daughters of God. It is a firm union that stands up to all that threatens it. First John is a great book of the Bible to study, no matter how long you have known the Lord. It presents deep truth, but in simple language that we can understand. It contains simple sharp contrasts that we resonate with. There's truth and lies. There's God in the world. There's light and darkness. And there is death and there is life. It contains essential truths and a lot of repetition. It presents familiar truths with a lot of repetition. Did I happen to mention that it compels us to believe these truths with a lot of repetition? (laughs) John is wanting to ground us in the deepest possible, firmest location in Christ. In the fellowship that we have with God because of Christ. John's writing is driven by his passion for Christians to know what it means to truly know God. Why is this? Why is John so passionate about this marriage of truth and love? Well, it's because he loves God and he loves God's people and he wants us to grow in that love, but he also does it because he knows that Satan is always working overtime to disconnect followers of Christ from doctrinal truth so that they can be a ship or a boat floating in an endless sea, being driven and, and passed back and forth by every wind of doctrine not securely tied to any kind of anchoring truth 
Satan is always spreading spiritual-sounding lies. That is what compels John to pick up his quill and start writing this letter to God's people. The congregations that first heard this letter publicly read, because remember, they didn't have Bibles they could carry around everywhere like we have. They heard the letter publicly read. There was a context in which that letter was written and then delivered and then read. And the context was false teaching that was invading the church, the churches of Christ. And so as John begins to write, he undoubtedly remembers the warning of the Apostle Paul to the elders of the church at Ephesus to watch out for false teachers who would weave themselves into the fabric of the church. Listen to these parting words of Paul in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know, Paul says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. The greatest threat to the church has always been from within the church, not from the outside. It's always been that way. Savage wolves come in among the flock, not sparing them, Paul says, teaching doctrinal lies in order to draw away disciples after them. And that's exactly what happened in John's day. John was writing to believers who were being impacted primarily by the false doctrine known as Gnosticism. Possessing some kind of a higher knowledge that no one else can attain to. Gnosticism is a mixture of religion and philosophy that teaches that matter is evil and spirit is good. Therefore, the human body is evil and is the source of all of our problems. Rather than the spiritual nature that resides within these frail fallen bodies being the primary cause and force behind evil. So after encountering Christianity, the Gnostics then tried to adapt it into their system. But to do so, they had to conclude that Jesus Christ could not have possibly had a material body. Because the body is evil, spirit is good. 
So we can't mix Christianity into Gnosticism unless we do something to diminish the dual nature of Jesus Christ as being both God and man. But there was a problem. I mean, the number of living witnesses was overwhelming. There was, there was simply no undoing the historical evidence surrounding the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was overwhelming. And so the only thing they could do was attempt compromise. And so the Docetists believed that Christ only seemed to have a body. Oh, there were those people who, who say they saw him, but they only saw a ghost. They only saw a phantom. As just a vision, it wasn't a real thing. Then there were the Corinthianists who taught that Jesus had a human body, that he was a man, but that Christ was a different person. That, that the Christ was the, the spirit son that descended upon the physical Jesus when he was baptized and then left him before the crucifixion. But historical fact, of course, disproves that as well. The evidence swallows all of those lies. See, true Christianity, John says, is not some watered-down, compromised version of Jesus, but it stands upon the solid foundation of historical fact. Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God who became a man. He lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death. And three days later, his body physically arose and he was seen by hundreds of people. And 40 days later, he bodily, physically, bodily, ascended into heaven with so many witnesses. These are proven facts. To, to deny them is not only complete foolishness, but it also will lead to eternal death. Because without the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity, there is no salvation. So John writes to put Jesus on display and to root our fellowship with God in doctrine, which is based upon actual historical fact of God working in history. You see this in the opening verses. He carefully introduces us to Jesus, who he calls the word of life, the end of verse 1. And then he, he lays this foundation of sound doctrine about Christ. So this morning, God wants you to embrace five truths concerning his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. 
First, to be a true Christian, you must embrace the Son of God as the eternal word of the living God. In these four verses, John says this is who Jesus Christ is. This is the foundation upon which true Christianity is built. He is the eternal word of the living God. Look at first, uh, verse 1. That which was from the beginning. In other words, that which was from eternity. That which was before the beginning. And this so clearly echoes John's gospel. In John 1, verses 1 to 3, we read this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John calls Jesus the word of life in 1 John. In his gospel, he refers to him as the eternal word who was with God and who was God and who made everything that we see. And this agrees with Colossians chapter 1, which presents Jesus as the agency of the Trinity involved primarily in creation. God spoke, and when he spoke, he spoke words. And what was the word? Who was the word who was speaking? It was the eternal living word of God, the Son of God. To be a true Christian, this is a truth you must embrace. That Jesus Christ is the eternal word of the living God. He has always existed. (laughs) We can't comprehend that. Can you comprehend something, someone that has always existed, has no beginning, no end? I can't do that. And yet that is the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. Secondly, you must embrace the Son of God as the historic Jesus, God in the flesh. Look at the second part of verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see what John is doing here? John is making it very, very clear that this Jesus, this word of life, is the historical Jesus. This is God come to earth. And and he gives four ways that he and the other followers of Jesus accurately perceived Jesus as the word of life. We have heard, he says. We, We have heard him. John and and the other disciples lived and walked with Jesus during his three years of public ministry. They listened to his sermons. They heard him pray to the Father. We have heard him. Then he says, we have seen him. And to make it crystal clear, he's not talking about some kind of a vision. We have seen him with our eyes. (laughs) He wasn't just a phantom. 
wasn't just a ghost that we conjured up, that we wanted to believe something so badly that our imagination just produced something that we saw. No, we saw him with our eyes. And we looked upon him. The word looked means to gaze with searching interest. So not only did we hear him, not only did we see him, but we gazed intently upon him, trying to soak out of him everything we could possibly learn about God. Because he is the image of the invisible God, the book of Hebrews says. And we touched him with our hands. John, the beloved disciple, he he rested his head on the chest of Jesus. Thomas placed his finger into the wounds of Jesus after the resurrection. John even recorded that. So this is the dual nature of Jesus Christ. He is both God and man. And this is a required doctrine of true Christianity. Anyone who fudges on the nature of who Jesus is as 100% God and 100% man cannot be a Christian. John says that in chapter 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is. And you must embrace him as the historic Jesus, God in the flesh. Thirdly, you must embrace him as the possessor and revealer of eternal life. Look at verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. What life? And we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life life. This eternal life was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This eternal word of God who was always with the Father and always with the Spirit, he possesses eternal life. And as the possessor of eternal life, he is able to reveal it. This eternal life was with the Father, but it was made manifest to us. When Jesus was praying in John 17, he says this, this is eternal life, that they know you, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When we hear the term eternal life, 
we tend to think of a destination, right? We tend to think of a place and a time period. And yet when Jesus defines eternal life, he defines it as a relationship. That when you possess eternal life, what that means is you have entered into a relationship of fellowship with God. You are now one with Jesus, who is one with the Father and the Spirit. And you possess the life that Jesus possesses. Mind-boggling. Number four. You must also affirm the Son of God as the only way to have fellowship with God. Verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. True Christians know fellowship with God, and they want others to know it. And they long to spend time with others who already possess it. There is a fellowship that knits us together that is deeper than any superficial, horizontal appearing, unifying factor that we have or think we have. This is a sense of community that goes deeper than anything that we can see. Deeper than any superficial differences we may have. And John and his fellow believers want his readers to know this kind of fellowship. The word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia, which signifies a mutual participation in a common cause or shared life. This eternal life that was with the Father and with the Son is given to us in Christ, and we now share a common life, the eternal life, and that is what binds us together. And it binds us together in not only belief, agreeing together of what is true about Jesus Christ, but it binds us together in love. A love that the world doesn't understand. The world can't understand the love that Christians have for one another because they do not share in the life that produces the love. And then finally, notice Jesus, the Son of God, is the ultimate source of joy. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John says, nothing would make us more joyful than for you to stay in the truth, stay on the path of truth, doctrinal truth, about who Jesus Christ is, 
and what he has done and that you would walk in this love that comes only from him. So let me ask you this morning, what is it that brings you joy? What brings you joy? Jesus says in John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So there's a joy that comes from walking in obedience with the Lord Jesus and his word. And John, you may have caught this as we read it, John forever weds true faith and Christian love and obedience altogether. In fact, he prays for us in John 17. He says to the Father, I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He's referring to Judas. So that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy fulfilled in themselves. See, our joy is not something we conjure up. It's not like, well, I know I'm going through a really difficult time. I'm supposed to be joyful, so I've got to crank myself up. No, this is a joy that only Jesus can produce. And every human being is on a quest for joy. I mean, really, when you think about it, is that not true? I mean, everyone is searching ultimately for joy. Everyone's on a journey for something that's going to satisfy them. And John is making it clear to us that only Jesus is the source of this joy. And, and surely that's why he ends his letter with that warning, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Stay away from anything that brings you, tempts you to get more joy out of it than Jesus provides. That's what an idol is. An idol is anything that brings you more joy than your relationship with Jesus. So I asked you, what brings you joy? If anything that you thought of brings you more joy than your relationship with Jesus, then it's an idol. And John says, keep yourselves from idols. This is Christ. This is the foundation of true Christianity. Yesterday, my sons and nephew and I spent time exploring Lakeview Cemetery, one of Cleveland's most famous sites. And we, we walked around looking at the gravestones and reading the inscriptions. And, um, and then we visited the Wade Chapel and admired all the Tiffany glass mosaics on the walls. And we were marveling at the artistry and the skill and the workmanship involved while the tour guide revealed her ignorance of biblical truth. 
She explained how each of us is like the men and women in those mosaics, in those boats. We're all seated there, we're all seated in boats, and, and, and we're all rowing toward that eternal light. And eventually, she said, we'll all arrive at that same destination. But she's wrong. Believe whatever you want, because one day we'll all get there, is not the gospel. It is not true. It is a lie that is jam-packed with consequences that do not end at the cemetery. leads to eternal death. So what a great joy it is for us to know these truths, to be rooted in them. And may God use our study of this amazing letter to cause us to find the fullness of our joy in Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for not leaving us in our ignorance, but giving us your clear revelation, the revelation of truth through the word of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we lift up our voices in praise, May you receive our worship and praise, Lord. And may you so continue to work in our hearts that every one of us here today may become firmly planted, grounded in the gospel, rooted in Christ, who is to be our fullness of joy. In his name we pray, amen.